0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I really hope everyone is listening to Tech Bites, the show on the Heritage Radio Network where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And I have to say um, that intersection of food and technology has never been more important than it is Today. This is our last episode of 2020 in December. And as has been our tradition for the past five years on Tech Bytes, we take our last episode of the year to look to the new year. And I think everyone will say we'll be really happy to turn the page on 2020 and look forward to 2021. With us today to talk about predictions and what might be coming is Vaughn Tan, he is a London-based strategy consultant, author, and professor at University College London of School of Management and he's recently published a book Uncertainty Mindset which is actually about restaurants and their ability to solve problems and navigate through uncertain times although not this time but perhaps it's applicable uh, Vaughn, thank you for joining us from Points
2: Afar. Where are you today in the world? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm in the Auvergne on the Massif Central in France.
1: That sounds actually very lovely and a really nice place to be for December, the holidays, winter. Is it really cinematic and pastoral and very French?
2: It is very pastoral and uh, it is primarily pastoral in the sense that I'm in a very old converted barn that has very poor insulation which I think is very consistent with how farms used to be.
1: Very nice. So you're having um, my winter in Provence. <laughs> Maybe that's the next book that you need to write. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps.
2: <laughs> but anyway, thanks for having me. It's, it's very good to be here.
1: Well, one of the interesting things about this year of Tech Byte, starting in March, uh, March episode 200, which we recorded on March 16th, was the first episode we did. We were in stay at home, under stay at home orders in New York City and New York State. It was the first episode we recorded via Zencaster. And up until that point, the hard fast rule of Tech Bytes had been to have people physically inside the studio. And the Heritage Radio Network studio is located inside two repurposed shipping containers at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And it had a very, very different vibe from Zencaster. And we got together in person, we had pizza, we had drinks, we got to have the hustle and bustle of Roberta's, all that ambient noise coming through the studio glass windows is sort of the baseline soundtrack of Tech Bytes. But going to Zencaster has its silver lining, and that silver lining is being able to talk to people around the world, which has really been wonderful over the course of this year. And I'm particularly uh, interested in Vaughn's point of view because you are usually based in London, you are now based in France, and it's really great to have a global perspective about what's happening now and and what you think is going to happen in the future for restaurants. I think a great place to start, and if people are, you know, following along at home, uh, Vaughn did a great piece in April at Eater London, and it talked about what restaurants needed to do to survive this time, and that restaurants would never be able to go back to quote normal. And you know, a few months later, we can look at that article with some hindsight and see. You know, what trends and what advice and predictions he had that were spot on. And the interesting thing is that the article talks about the vaccine being the pivot point for the, the, the big turning point for everyone globally, in terms of when we would start to come out of the COVID pandemic. And amazingly enough, it's here. The vaccine is here. It's not widely distributed, but it's here. So Vaughn, let's talk a little bit about what your thoughts were in April and how those thoughts have evolved. And maybe some have, maybe some haven't, maybe some have fallen by the wayside now that we do have the vaccine. Um, but from from your point of view, um, like what were the things this year that restaurants needed to focus on? And then what do you see coming through to 2021?
2: Yeah, uh, I think these are extremely good questions. So. I, I did think back in April that the vaccine and it becoming available would be the beginning of a pivoting point I guess and nobody truly expected that there would be a working vaccine this fast so this is amazing news but if you talk to a public health person I think they'll probably say and I agree that it's not just having a vaccine but having people be vaccinated at the at the at an adequate, uh, ratio in any given country's population for things to go back to something like normal from before the pandemic time. So you know that we're in a much better place than we could have expected to, to have been in in April. But I don't think things are going to go back to normal super fast either, because it's going to take a long time to make enough vaccine to to vaccinate. You know, in the US, the US, uh, the UK, France, all every country will need to have, in a sense. Either true or vaccinated herd immunity before things will go back to normal, and that will just take time, right? So not only will you need to manufacture more vaccine doses, you'll also need to create an infrastructure for for administering them. You'll have to convince people that they should take a vaccine that was approved so quickly. I think they, these are all big challenges. Um, but I think what what are the
1: what are the generally accepted or noted in you know the medical field and the um, public health space, what are the percentages of people who need to be either immune or vaccinated to the virus to have a large enough impact for society to go back to living in closer contact?
2: So uh, the first thing I will say is I am not a public health professional. And so I, I I definitely don't know and I don't want to present myself as knowing. I think, however, the problem is right now there's still not certainty, it's very uncertain whether or not someone who has been vaccinated can still be, uh, can still infect others. So if it is true that you can be vaccinated and still be infectious, then the calculus changes, right? You, you yourself, having been vaccinated, are obviously at less risk of getting a serious case of COVID or dying from it. The, the risk is much lower if you've been vaccinated. But if you can continue to spread the disease to other people who haven't been vaccinated, then how we think about when normality or some semblance of normality will return obviously has to be rethought. Um, So I I think that this is something which also the implications have not really been widely discussed uh, because everyone is very excited that there's a vaccine right now. I'm excited too, but I I think I would be cautiously excited.
1: So even though it is an amazing scientific achievement, you know, globally and all the different companies that have, have done it and the approvals and things like that. And, and we have seen pictures in the news and social media from around the world of people getting vaccinated this week. It's a huge, huge uncertain point. And it's so small and nascent in terms of its actual rollout and actual application for all intents purposes, for a restaurant today looking at the end of the year and looking at how to plan going into January, for all intents purposes, the world has not changed yet. We maybe have a, a lift of emotional and intellectual um, hope and confidence and you know light at the end of the tunnel, but in terms of the practicality of current operating procedure, nothing has really changed for restaurants. And I would say actually in New York City, where I am, um, restaurants have closed indoor dining this week. Um, there are rolling closures across the country of indoor dining, outdoor dining as the numbers go up. So even though we do have the vaccine now, we're sort of in a similar situation to where we were in April when you penned that article. So, um Going through to if I'm if I'm a restaurant person, I'm sitting down and I'm thinking about what to do through the end of the year, which is really only a a few, you know, a few days. What am I planning for for January?
2: Do you think? I also think that's an excellent question. And it's a it's a very acute observation as well, because it's not just in the U.S. where there are rolling closures of indoor dining. Um, I think what you've already begun and to outdoor
1: dining as well. In California, oh, they've closed yeah. outdoor dining in some instances. So Absolutely. it's yeah.
2: But he, here in Europe, uh, where you know over this over the course of the initial lockdown period, uh, Europe in some ways acted faster than the U.S. In some ways, didn't act fast enough, but they did kind of push the curve down enough that they could reopen over the summer. And now the the case rate is, as they say, roaring back. So you've got the same kinds of dynamics going on. It's not just in the US, I think, outside of the places in Asia, primarily, where they took serious action and stuck with it for long enough. um, Europe and the US are both in analogous, although not identical situations. So what should restaurants do in the next few months, you know, into Q1 of 2021? I think... In some ways, it makes it harder that there is a vaccine now because it seems so tantalizingly close, the return to normality. But as you point out, until enough of the population gets vaccinated, you won't actually be able to, as a public health authority, as a government, as a municipality, say, okay, everyone gets to go back and eat indoors and hang out with people again. And the problem is you don't even know yet truly what proportion of the population needs to be vaccinated for that to be true. So for the moment, what I would probably say if I was a restaurateur, and again, I also want to say I'm not a restaurateur either. I used to work in restaurants, but you know, I'm not a restauranteur. If I were a restaurateur, what I would be planning is I would be trying to figure out how to have a business model that works even if there is no dine-in for the next, I don't know, like if you want it to be very precautionary, nine months, if you want it to be at least sensible, at least three or six, because you just don't know, right? You can't assume that dine-in is going to start up, that caseloads are going to drop. You can't assume that people are going to get vaccinated enough that you can go back to business as usual. And so I think that very simple that, that's a very simple sort of take on what next year will look like. It, it will be on the cusp of coming back, but we won't know when and uh, we won't know exactly how, which means it's basically going to be the same as what we've been going through now. <laughs>
1: It's a fascinating juxtaposition um, between, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, but not having any impact in many ways. But I do think that the emotional and psychological and, you know, positivity in the headlines do make a tremendous difference um, in terms of, you know, how people can change and how businesses can change and how restaurants and food makers can evolve their businesses to survive into the next year. You know, you you have some interesting tools on your website. If people are listening at home, Vaughn has a couple different websites with a lot of excellent information. His personal site is Vaughn.org and that's V-A-U-G-H-N.
2: Vontan.org.
1: Oh, Vontan. My apologies. I no made handwritten notes. I should have just gone to the web. <laughs> And the other one is uncertaintymindset.org. But on vontan.org, you have the um, you have a very interesting survey slash tool that you put together. And the beginning of it is uh, restaurants simply asking themselves: Should they stay open? Should they close? And if they stay open, what they should do? And you know that sort of first question of evaluating um, what needs to happen is. Really an interesting one, I think. And something that Vaughn and I talked about um, last week when we were getting ready to do the show is it's a very, we're in a moment of, of um, there are a lot of elements of just human nature that are playing into how we are living and then that impose themselves onto how we decide to run our businesses one of the most difficult things that i think human beings generally are most adverse to is change and i think that the reason why we want so much for things to go back to the way they were just in our day-to-day lives is we just want that as human beings and we don't want the change in the new world and the new thing especially since the new thing we have now is really kind of terrible so I think people on a personal level are holding on to what things were. And then I think that translates very much into if I'm a business owner, I want it very much to hold on to that thing that it was before. And maybe the first thing is just a sort of intellectual letting go of the thing I had before and then re re reimagining, re-envisioning, rebooting your business as something different.
2: Yeah, I so the first thing I want to say is I I completely agree that this is a general problem for people as people, not just people who happen to be restaurateurs. Um, the this idea that it's very difficult to acknowledge change when it's not one that you think is good, f- that you that is not one that you think is beneficial to you, or that you benefit from. That's definitely true. Like even when change is beneficial to you a person, we know that people find it very difficult to say, yes, let's embrace that. So the the biggest challenge, I, I wanted to go to something which you said, which is that you need to intellectually embrace the fact that you need to change. I think that's actually a secondary problem, even though it's also a big one. The biggest problem is emotionally and effectively acknowledging that something which you put a lot of yourself and your identity into, which for restaurateurs is this idea of hospitality, this is the way you do a restaurant, you need to emotionally, I guess, acknowledge that maybe you can't do that for the next three or six or nine months. But By the way, I hope I'm wrong about all these and that normality returns like tomorrow. But if it doesn't, then the first thing you need to do is you need to like emotionally let go of the idea that things will get back to normal so soon that you can afford to not change anything. Because at that point, then you can start to intellectually come to grips with this question of, if I don't do what I used to do, what do I do instead? And then that's what that pandemic pivot tool, which you mentioned, um, helps you to do, right? So it just forces you to put down some things on virtual paper to see whether or not they help you get your business to the point where it plausibly could make enough money to support whoever it is that you need to support. So I, I think it's an emotional question first, and that's very hard. And then once you've dealt with that, then it becomes an intellectual question, and that's just spreadsheets, and that part is relatively speaking not emotionally difficult. It may just be, you know, difficult from a how do I put these numbers in perspective, and that's something that's solvable. So
1: it's a it's a two part process, and interestingly, you know, technology will you know it sort of allows you to share the ideas with people, and in many respects, I, I think that there are so many. Th- technological platforms out there that will and are helping restaurants and food makers kind of navigate through this. I think, you know, something that we've talked about on this show and we've talked with a number of business owners and restaurant owners about what they're doing and how, you know, they're trying to pivot their business into offering something that is not an in-person experience. It's very similar to this show. And as I said at the top of the hour um, we used to be in person, and now we are remote recordings. And one of our first guests, when we started remote recording, she came on the show. She had been on the show before, Deepti Sharma, and she said, "Oh, it's so. This is so great. This is like coming home." And the funny thing is, is that she she was actually sitting in her home, <laughs> as I was. We were all we we're all sitting at home, and. There was something just about the collective energy and the conversation and the show and the space and talking together that it felt like Tech bites on Heritage Radio Network. And I think that's a very salient point because while we really think about the in-person experience when restaurants and, you know, gym owners and shop owners and market owners – Think about what the experiences they want to give their customers. We are thinking about a physically tangible thing where you go in are in-person. But I think we discover now that there are these intangible things, that there are these intellectual things, these ideas, these feelings of what a brand is, what an experience is, that if people can extrapolate that and figure out what that is and then turn it into other services and maybe think about Are we thinking about the evolution of a restaurant business as a vertical integration versus a horizontal one? I think typically when restaurant owners and chefs think about expanding their business, they're not so much thinking about pushing the envelope on a single physical space. They're thinking about opening two or opening three or you know, expanding the number of restaurants in the group versus saying we have one physical restaurant. What is the vertical integration of all the elements of the experience that we have here that we can then start to package and sell to our customers?
2: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so just to preface this by saying that I would never have wished for a pandemic, and I still don't want this pandemic. I think it's horrible, obviously. But the, the interesting thing about the pandemic is that it is sort of undeniably a situation where people just need to do something different, right? Like, If your entire business model was around bringing people together in a convivial setting with each other in an indoor space, and the fact of bringing people together and the fact of being indoors is no longer possible, it's a pretty clear sign that the business model needs to do something different. At least in the short or maybe the medium term, and so what that does is, even though it's a horrible thing to have to do, it is also the potential for it. It's the potential for doing something which is brand new that you never would have thought of even wanting to try before, and this is where innovation can come from. So I, I was talking to uh, th- there's another group of restaurateurs and, and other food industry people in Copenhagen that I, I talk to semi regularly. And one of the things which I said to them at that point was, you know, even if you'd never thought about productizing some part of your business before, now is a good time to think about it. Like, what do your customers generally really want from you that you can still provide to them, right? And it may not be, as you pointed out, Jen, in the context of sitting indoors with a tablecloth or whatever it is. It Now is an opportunity to literally think outside of that box. And Matt Orlando from Amass uh, was like, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, people just always want that fermented potato bread. And it's totally plausible to produce that as a thing that you can sell and not just sell as a commodity product, but it comes with brand associations that Amass has built up over several years of operating as a as a much-loved restaurant, both in Copenhagen and internationally. So I, I think that, that's just one very sort of concrete and and frankly, it, it's an obvious and therefore not super weird and and interesting example of how you can innovate because you have to but this is an opportunity to think about things that maybe your customers want that you've never even thought of providing to them as a product and maybe it'll work but you know try things out in small ways right so try
1: trying things out in small ways um mm -hmm. which is not a bad idea And, you know, thinking about the things that people love most or the most popular items or, um, you know, I know that there and I'm not encouraging restaurants, but there are some restaurants that have, you know, pieces of cutlery or, you know, ashtrays back in the day and things like that where people would take them. So they started just selling them or restaurants would have to take the branding off of uh, tableware and serviceware because people would take them. So there's, you know, there's a... um, a list of things when I think when you think about the experience, if you visualize and start to make a note of every moment of the customer experience, which I know that restaurant owners do when they're thinking about service and greeting and all those types of things. But if you think about it more in uh, the aspect of what's happening, what are they touching, what are they seeing, what are they listening to? Even what are they listening to? I mean, very famously, um, two, you know, sort of French entities, Hotel Cost and Buda Bar, yeah. they made big business just selling the soundtracks Absolutely. to the restaurants and yeah. the lounges, which yeah. is something that was kind of unheard of, but um, did very, very well.
2: Yeah. Uh, it, I, I think what seems to be true, I don't know if it is true, it just seems to be true, is uh, all of the obvious things are, they may work. Where you're going to see some really cool stuff is when a restauranteur really knows his or her customer and can, as you pointed out, get inside their heads to understand like what makes them really love coming to the restaurant or the group of restaurants. Because at that point, you know, really knowing your customer is going to be so much more important now than it used to be. Because now the only people who can come to you and who are going to make the effort to come to a restaurant Are the ones who are, in a sense, driven by what the restaurant's really about rather than by PR or by Instagram or by social media in general. So, that close connection to a customer, I think, is going to be what's going to give restauranteurs uh, an insight into what their productizing and their new business model should lean towards. And if there's, I, I really hope that this happens. I don't know if it will, but if it does happen that because of a pandemic, Uh, restaurants become more oriented towards identifying who it is that they're trying to serve and understanding them well instead of oriented towards PR and social media. Uh, I think that will be a really good thing for the restaurant business as a whole because it's going to produce restaurants that are happier restaurants that serve food for people who really love them more, right? And also, not incidentally, producing innovations that don't look as sexy, but actually, work better. They make the restaurants money. They're what people actually really want. That kind of innovation, I can completely get behind.
1: Innovation that works, but it's not sexy. Yeah.
2: Totally. <laughs> well, but I think the problem that's is totally. We, an- we we see very anti-innovation. Well, I I maybe, but I I think not even at the level of innovation that's uh you know like a dish right, like the it seems to me that one of the problems with how we think about innovation, especially in restaurants, is that we think of it as a very whiz bang, flashy, this is a, a new narrative or a new like dish that's got all sorts of new techniques on it. And I'm not I'm not discounting the fact that those are innovations. Well, all I'm saying is that innovations are just when you're doing something new that nobody has done before where you are, that is also useful and valuable for you and your customer. That That is a kind of innovation that also encompasses things like Changing your process so that you reduce the cost that is attributable to waste, or finding something that you do for a customer that more customers want to buy, like potato bread, right? And thinking about that as being worthy of being called innovation as well, even though normally it would not be sexy enough to be called innovation. Like, why bother if it's sexy as long as it works? And it's good. I think that that's really <laughs> the criterion that we should be taking on how restaurants should do something new especially now?
1: Well, well, to your point, uh, one of our guests on the last week's show, the penultimate show, is always a year-in-review recap. So the episode 222 was the year-in-review for 2020, and one of our guests is somebody who's been on the show many times. Actually, both of our guests were on the show many times. We had um, one of the founders of a company called Shoebox, and Shoebox is a tech company for restaurants, Created by um, two people who worked in restaurants. One was the chef, one was front of the house. And it is a completely non sexy point of purchase software and accounting system where essentially, you know, people who love small vendors and purveyors and farm to table and all that kind of stuff, you would have a a strawberry vendor come in and deliver beautiful strawberries to the kitchen in season. And the invoice would be a post-it note that said four pounds, $40. Right. So what do you do with that? And how do you keep your food costs in line? So their program, you take a picture of it, you send it to them. They have people who do all of the work. And then the next day, all of your, all of your accounting is up to date. So you can have real-time food costs, which is extremely critical for a restaurant to be able to be profitable versus a one or two or three-month lag time, which is sometimes the case. And it's totally not sexy, even though it is kind of magical. And accounting and sales and price points and profit margins are really important for the success of a restaurant. But we never talk about that. And that's really the true business of like being a a good chef and a good manager. But we don't see Top Chef Challenge spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. But that to me is really agree. a great innovation. And the thing that part of the reason why we keep having Shoebox come on to the show is their tech business is by restaurant people for restaurant people, which is surprisingly we, we don't see very much of. And their business is also dependent on the business. So they're a good insight into what's happening.
2: Yeah. By the way, I I, I could not agree more with that. And I think the other thing that we don't give much credit to and we don't sort of big up is this idea that you can be incredibly ambitious and innovative as a restaurant that is not trying to simply come up with like flashy innovation food, right? So I, I think why are we not talking about innovation at the business model level where you can make enough money to pay your staff well, pay your suppliers fairly, and charge a fair price for good food in a neighborhood. Like if you can figure that out, that actually would be. I think we talked about this last week, Jen. Uh, this would be a stable and viable business model. And business model innovation is also worthy of being called innovation. And we never talk about that. Now, all we talk about is restaurants that, in a sense, are marquee names. But when you look at their individual economics as a restaurant, they often don't make very much sense. You know, they're, they're like you use the phrase like. Giants with feet of clay. Like, why aren't we thinking about innovative business models that actually work as businesses? Because those are likely to be the ones that survive when times get tough, like they are now.
1: Well, we are going to take a quick break and give credit to the people who are helping our business, the business of radio, keep going. Did you know that Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We are, kind of like public radio, and we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, many of whom are listeners like you, grants, and underwriters like this one. Find out who is making this show possible. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing food waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruit and vegetables. Because here's the thing. Less waste just doesn't mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food Gone Good. Learn more at appeal.com. Well, we are back to the last episode of Tech Bytes for the year 2020. We are looking to the year 2021, and it's a great moment to turn the page on what was a tumultuous and terrible and terrifying year in so many respects. Um, and we, uh, you know, think so much about friends and family and people in the world and, and the devastation. And one of the things that we think about is what can we do better next year and how can we, uh, do things better, celebrate things, and make things more delicious and equitable for everyone. We are talking with Vaughn Tan about his thoughts for 2021. Um, if you want to learn a little bit more about Vaughn and take a look at some of his um, thoughts and writings, you can find him on Instagram at Vaughn.tan. You can find him on Twitter at Vaughn underscore Tan. His website is vontan.org, and he recently published a book called The Uncertainty Mindset. You can find that at UncertaintyMindset.org. When you're on the site, you can sign up for his newsletter. You can also sign up for some book events that will be coming in 2021, virtual, of course. The Uncertainty Mindset, it is actually about the creativity and the problem solving and the just- outstanding MacGyver nature of people who work in restaurants, their multifaceted abilities to work across a lot of different types of jobs and job categories, all under the heading of make the restaurant work, make good food, make everything run smoother. And what we were talking about just before the break was innovation. And definitely for 2021, in order for us to have the greatest number of restaurants survive the pandemic and all the closures and the economic shutdowns, restaurants will need to innovate. And I think 2021, I mean, if, you know, Panatone comes out with a couple colors every year, maybe we need to come out with a theme. I'm not really big on resolutions, but I do like to have a theme for the year. And maybe innovation is the theme for 2021. Restaurants need to figure out how they can become multi-channel, multi-faceted, multi-product businesses to sustain themselves while they cannot have a traditional in-person experience. But coming out the other side, once in-person adds on, that will ultimately make them more sustainable. Um, Vaughn, you know, we talked so much about innovating, and sometimes it's customer facing, uh, you know, the the flashy new thing or the new dish or the new cocktail or the new thing that we all love. But many times the best innovations are the ones that people don't see and they're under the hood and they are in the back of the house and they're about systems and process and and cooking and efficiencies. And I do think 2020 and the events that happened that really brought more awareness to social justice social injustice the injustices of the economies of restaurants and society and pay scales and people who are without a safety net what are the what are the top areas of innovation you think that restaurants need to be looking at i mean if you thought about maybe your top 2 or 3 channels of innovation for restaurants to be thinking about um, in in a strange way, we we almost need to reimagine and rebuild the industry from the ground up in many ways.
2: Yeah, I think if I had to pick two areas, so I, I would qualify one thing which you said. I, I think innovation will innovation is always going to be something which an industry should be trying to do if the industry if the environment it's operating in is changing. Um, the one thing I would qualify is for a long time high-end cuisine at least has been all about culinary innovation in all the ways that you talked about the very obvious photogenic ways um i would suggest that for 2021 what restaurants should be fo- focusing on is a non-sexy innovation right so exactly the kinds of things that you also talked about instead of trying to make new dishes all the time or like do fancy things that look good on social media maybe what restaurants should be thinking about is how to create a business model that is uh, tight enough. And often this means a smaller kind of business that is also fair to all the people who are involved, you know, the suppliers, the workers, the customers, the owners. And the reason for this, I think, is because those kinds of business models tend to be more robust when things change. If you are fair to all these different constituents of your business, uh, chances are very high that when the situation that you are facing is unpredictable and changing all the time, uh, they'll stay loyal to you, right? And I think one thing that we've definitely seen is when a restaurant treats its primary audience as people who are willing to fly around the world on the basis of a good review in a, in a big circulation news, newspaper or, uh, you know, an Instagram post that goes viral Uh, that kind of success, while it's great when it lasts, can turn into something which is a major liability and can also be very transient. Whereas the kinds of restaurants which I hope will survive and also proliferate as a result of the pandemic are the ones that have never really had those kinds of ambitions. Instead, they've had the ambition of serving people that they know will always be willing to come back because they're getting really good value and they also know who they are, right? So they're not one-time visitors who are tourists, gastro tourists. Uh, neighborhood restaurants have a different kind of challenge to face and a different kind of challenge to kind of meet, which is to provide something which is good value and tastes good to people who want to come again and again. And that's hard. And that's that requires real innovation, but it's a very unsexy kind, right? So you need to innovate in the sense of, Learning how to build a business that employees want to keep working at. You need to innovate in the kitchen in the sense of learning how to cook food that people are willing to come back to eat again and again, where there is what I think of as evolutionary innovation rather than revolutionary innovation. I think these are all things that I would love for restaurants to think about in 2021 and beyond.
1: Those are all, that's a very uh, smart, succinct way of saying it. Evolutionary versus revolutionary in terms of innovations. Um, Really, really good way to put it. As a consultant, from your point of view, how can restaurants go about this? Are there, I mean, there are some different um, platforms and technology and services that come to mind, but that's a really kind of huge undertaking um, when you're used to running a business in a particular way. Where, how would how would restaurants start to strategize that, or do you have any thoughts about uh, places they could go or technology that they could use that would be uh, a way to start to start looking at that or start building that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing I want to say about that is it often feels instinctive, I guess, to go out and try and buy the the thinking right? So to look for a tool or a software platform or something that will help you come up with a new idea. But it actually seems to me, and I'm saying this with a consultant hat on as well. I think the most important thing that restaurants can do to innovate is to really, as I've mentioned before, to really think about who their customers are and really try and understand them. And for that, you don't really, I mean, technology will help, but you don't really need technology in the conventional sense. You don't need to buy a new product, What you need to do is you need to find some way of communicating with your customers. Um, And so I think in this respect, the, the restaurants that have always made it a priority to know who their customers are and to encourage them to come back again and again, they have a massive advantage. But once you know who your customers are and what they want, then I think this is when maybe technology becomes more helpful. It certainly helps a lot to put your thoughts about what your new business models, you know, all the different as you put it multi-channels that make up a business model, it certainly helps a lot, I think, to discipline your imagination. To have an imagination but to discipline it by putting it into some kind of spreadsheet perhaps, where you can see how all of their implications of all these different channels might play against each other. Because the probably the biggest problem that I've seen anyway is when people imagine that a new product line or service offering uh, will solve all their problems when in reality, what it entails is investing a lot. And for an outcome that you actually, if you thought about it, would have known would be insufficient to even justify the investment, let alone to ensure the survival of the business as a whole, right? So that kind of grounding in reality by simply modeling it out, and it doesn't have to be expensive. In fact, you can use free tools, like free online spreadsheets for free to do this kind of thinking. So I, I would suggest before restaurateurs or people who are thinking about the hospitality trade go out and buy new products and invest a lot of money in them, the first thing that's important is to really think very hard about who it is that your customers are, and then do some thinking with normal paper and a pen to think about what those implications are of understanding your customers on the kind of multi-channel business that you will have to have for the next three or six or nine months before things maybe go back to normal. I, I think it's really important to emphasize you don't have to spend a lot of money or even take a lot of time in order to think clearly about what an alternative business model or business models could look like.
1: What do you think the primary differences are between a restaurant or business owner sitting down today thinking about who their customer is and what services they want. Sitting down today and asking those questions versus sitting down a year ago. Because identifying your customers and what they want is something that business people and restaurant people do all the time. Is there a difference between doing that today than there was doing it a year ago? People who were sitting down to plan for 2020 in December last year is there inherently a difference to that question or is it just the same?
2: Uh, I think there sh- there should be because one one thing that I think all of 2020 is showing is that in some ways you can you can never as a restaurateur or really any kind of business owner plan for the full range of eventualities that might occur, right? This is why the future is always to some extent uncertain, but one thing that I think maybe has become clear from 2020 is that there used to be a crust of restaurants, usually, you know, fine dining ish or ambitious restaurants where the business model was built around kind of gastro destination tourism, right? So you build a space and you fit it out and you run a business model that is based on the idea that people are willing to to come in from often quite far away to eat at your place possibly once and never again and that destination kind of, restaurant yeah i mean destination gastrotourism, even, whatever you want to call it
1: that it even, it even happens though on a local level certainly in a city like sure. new york where i mean we definitely have the destination restaurants from a yes. global you know yeah. worldwide fame point of view but also oh is this place in greenwich village going to be a destination restaurant where people from Brooklyn or Queens or yes. the Bronx will make the trip mm-hmm. through the borough yeah. to come to this place on a Friday night because it's a destination restaurant. So destination dining yeah. doesn't ne- doesn't only exist on the global get Absolutely. on an airplane and fly to, you know, yeah. Spain, but also get on a subway. And, sure. you know, spend an hour to get to a, a different borough.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that the key thing about destination gastrotourism is this idea that generally gastro-tourists don't come back again and again. They're not regulars. And the biggest difference, I think, between end of 2019 and end of 2020 is I hope that people will realize that it makes a lot more sense if you are trying to sort of uncertainty proof, or at least make your business more robust to uncertainty, it makes much more sense to try and figure out a business model that works because people want to come back regularly. And once you think about that as a desire for your business model to fulfill, then it becomes much easier to think about who those customers might be, right? They won't be people who just have a fat pocketbook and want to come in for a blowout experience. You have to figure out ways to provide the experience that appeals to people who are close enough that they want to come back again and again. You, you become more of a neighborhood restaurant. And as a result, you have to understand your customer a lot better than when you previously thought of people as wanting to come in from afar, wherever Afar is, whether it's in another country or in another borough, because if you only have to satisfy them and make them excited once, the way of thinking about what satisfaction and excitement is and how you achieve it is very different from if you have to make them happy again and again and again. And I think the benefit of that is it also changes the dynamic of the restaurant, right? It's no longer a place where you come as a guest and you are expected to never be seen again. You can then have this kind of ongoing relationship with a restaurant, which I really love, And the benefit of that for the restaurant is that in a way, having this repeated game dynamic allows both sides to have bad days or bad weeks. So you can be really loyal to a restaurant and you come in and the food is not perfect, but you love them because they're always there for you. In the same way, maybe one day you come in as a guest and you're not like super friendly, but you've been many times before and it's fine. The restaurant knows who you are. Like, why can't we go back? to that being sort of what we all want from restaurants, both sides, right? Both as a guest and as a restaurateur. I think if the difference between 2019 and 2020 is showing that this kind of repeated guest dynamic is how good restaurants should think about what good is, I think this will be a very silver lining to a really, really, really bad year.
1: So we are looking at innovation for restaurants, but for evolution, not revolution, which is a, a great thing. And then in terms of the, the quality of, or the feeling of, we are going to really local community focused businesses where the, the thing is the thing, where you are in your neighborhood, you're supporting a local business. You're supporting people who probably uh, are living and working close to you. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that once you become familiar, it's almost like having a relationship with a person who's a friend. Some days you know, you're going to be the best friend in the world. Some days you're not, but that's okay. The friendship is going to sustain itself. And that's a interesting way maybe um, – you know, that is a two-piece uh, idea. One is kind of localizing the business or really the focus to the community aspect. But then also, I think maybe humanizing. You know, we, we know restaurants are entities that are run by human beings and people. And our restaurant people who, you know, I have a just a profound and deep love for, they're really being decimated right now so many reasons and we know restaurants are human businesses and maybe we need to not just uh from a business point of view but maybe also as a customer point of view sort of like rehumanize them in a way
2: yeah uh, i yeah. i absolutely i absolutely agree I, I think if if restaurants and i mean i think this is not just for restaurants if businesses in general are clearer about who their communities are that they're trying to serve and why those communities are good communities to serve, uh, I think that's that almost always makes a business more robust, right? Because if you know who you're serving and you know why you're serving them, you're much more likely to be good at serving them. and. I think this idea that you that you have about humanizing restaurants again, it makes complete sense because one thing that we also know, and this has come out in the last like four or five years, especially is that in many cases, the people who go into the restaurant business are in it because, you know, there, there is a deep sense of generosity about running a restaurant, right? Like you, you run it so that people come in, they have a great time, they eat great food. That's in many cases now sort of, Diverging further and further away from the actual experience of being even on the other side of of running a restaurant where you have ridiculous fixed costs, you are you are forced to adopt those fixed costs because you've sort of locked yourself into this ambitious destination dining business model. It's not even that much fun. It's in a way it's dehumanizing even for the people who are running the restaurant. And If you went back to a situation where maybe the goal feels less ambitious, you just want to provide nice food for people that come back again and again, whom you know and you like, and have staff that know and like the regulars who come in again and again. That whole situation for everyone the staff, the owner, the suppliers, the diners would be literally a more human relationship based thing rather than this transactional thing that restaurants feel to me anyway like they are becoming. And that would be a good thing, too, right? For it to become more human in that relational sense.
1: I think that that brings me to maybe potentially a last feature of 2021, um, which this one is maybe aspirational in an in an odd way we you know we have talked before um, in this conversation and we've also talked before on this program leading into the pandemic there was a a reckoning coming in the restaurant business there was so much about the industry and the way restaurants were structured financially um, that was becoming extremely untenable specifically in in large urban centers like new york city where you have really escalating real estate costs, you have escalating food costs, you have escalating um, employee costs, but what you did not have was escalating menu prices. And there was a, a big reckoning coming between what it actually costs a restaurant and what diners are actually willing to pay. And I think one of the things that the pause in Life has shown us in so many ways is where all of our different systems are broken. And specifically with the restaurant industry, we now realize, and we can't go back and say, I didn't know. Everyone now realizes that restaurants have extraordinary costs. If you want people to have full-time work with health benefits and paid days off and childcare, that means Restaurants need to pay their employees more. That means restaurants need to spend more money providing those benefits for their employees. Um, Restaurants, if you want to have a farm-to-table situation where you have, you know, ethically produced, sourced vegetables, meat, milk, all those types of things, that costs money. If you want, you know, a place to be in your neighborhood in New York City... That costs money if you want the lights on 24 hours a day. That costs money. And yeah. restaurants have not been able to actually a hundred percent put all of those costs, real cost, actual costs, the real cost of doing those things and implementing them, and translating that into the menu. Because for some reason consumer ideas outside of that global gastro tourism you know on the one hand people will pay a thousand dollars for dinner for two in you know a different time zone but we have a hard time breaking like the ten dollar barrier on a hamburger or the fifteen dollar barrier or you know whatever the case may be so i do think that the the last point of a prediction or you know a forecast for 2021 i think comes from the Consumer side comes from the public side. You, people, cannot be up in arms and out in the streets saying that they want a more balanced, fair, equitable society, and not be willing to pay the price for that. Yes. So I think you know now is also a good time, and I think it goes back to what you were saying at the very um, beginning. It's a simple spreadsheet. It's a simple pen and paper spread spreadsheet calculation. Now is the perfect time for restaurants to load all the real cost of all the things that they want to do into their spreadsheet. And then when the menu comes out on the other side, maybe on menus, instead of saying, you know, we got these beautiful leeks and strawberries, you know, they were handpicked by a very nice person who brought them to our door. Maybe the thing they say on the restaurant is, and your hamburger is twenty five dollars because every single one of our employees is full staff. They have health insurance. We provide daycare, yeah. and yeah. that's that's the cost.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I we also talked about this last week, Jen. I I hope that that happens and that it works. My, I'm very. I guess I'm pessimistic that that very rapid adoption of higher food prices will happen. At least on the consumer side, I do think though that if you are a restaurateur and you want to do you want to do what I would call not a true cost but a fuller cost accounting of the food you want to provide in the context you want to provide it, one thing that that can do is it can help you figure out how to redesign the business model so that you can do all of that fuller cost accounting while still producing food that is, you know, reasonably priced at a level that people are willing to eat it or pay for it. And, and what I mean by this is it may turn out that you cannot do this fuller cost accounting and still produce food that is priced at a level that people will buy it if you're doing it in a fine dining context. But you could do it in like kind of a canteen situation. And I'm not saying every this will work for everyone, but there, there maybe is more freedom to choose different business models once as a restaurateur you know what truly matters to you, right? So if it really matters that you source from around where your restaurant is, if you pay your staff properly and you have, I guess, operating hours that make it possible for you to have a family life. Once you once you treat those things as the non-negotiable, immovable priorities, you can figure out how to adjust all the other parameters so that those three really make sense. And maybe the way you do it is to open in, not New York City, but in a more... In a, in a lower rent city that is not as big. And that way you can square that weird circle, right? Or maybe the way you do it is by running it with a much smaller team and opening fewer days. But I think there is freedom to think about business models that do what you need them to do, as long as it's clear what things they must do and what things you are willing to trade off or get rid of. And And that maybe is where I think it is more plausible that we get to a point where there is a fuller cost accounting simply because every, every restaurateur who I think is sensible should be thinking about this this stuff right now because this is a great opportunity. It's a forced opportunity, but it's a great opportunity to think about it.
1: And everyone is thinking about the same thing. And everyone is in the same moment worldwide, which is an extraordinary circumstance. Uh, A restaurant is not alone grappling with these things almost in a vacuum where the customers don't know, their neighbors don't know, and the community doesn't know, and the industries may be paying attention to other things. We're all at the same place now. So I think it is, you know, the, the silver lining of a terrible situation that we all understand and have a better understanding now that when things start to change because they need to change, we all know why. And we can't say, I didn't know, because <laughs> now you do. Yeah. <laughs> we all Absolutely. know. Everybody knows. Yeah. Um, we are out of time. And um, I'm, Vaughn and I had a very long conversation getting ready for the show. And one of the things that we were going to try and talk about was the restaurants that don't change that are open for a thousand years, which there's a fascinating article in the New York Times a few weeks ago about a Japanese mochi shop that has been open for a 1000 years, done exactly the same thing, almost exactly the same way. And that's sort of the counterpoint to change, don't change. But we don't have time for that. So maybe that's something that we can have you back and we can talk about next year. I would love that. Uh, on Just to close it out, do you have any um, last thoughts or predictions for 2021? Well, before we say
2: goodbye? I think the only prediction is that it seems really essential for restaurants to plan for not being able to operate dine-in and then be really, really pleased if they can, rather than expecting to be able to operate dine-in and then be devastated when they cannot. And this will probably be until the middle of the year, unfortunately, I hope I'm wrong.
1: so it's almost a flipping where before it was, oh, if we have the opportunity to do to-go or retail yeah. or these other things or merchandise, we'll do that. Now yeah. it's we're going to do to-go and merchandise and retail. And yeah. then if we can do in person, then that becomes a yeah. uh, circumstantial it's the, sort of it's rotational the the thing. that Yeah. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think the other thing I would say, just because – often I get misinterpreted when I say these things, is that when you try out all these other things that are not dining in, I think everyone should be trying them out in small, inexpensive ways to understand whether or not they might be something to invest more in rather than really going in with a massive investment before you know even anything at all about whether or not it might be right for you, whether it's something you want to do, and whether it might work economically. So lots and lots Mm -hmm. of small experimental steps that are inexpensive, where each step that is inexpensive teaches you about whether or not to take more steps. That's how to do it, I think. That's just my opinion.
1: Well, that makes sense. Start small. It's like running. It's like putting a special. You're not gonna, exactly. you know, put a special exactly. on the menu yeah. and have it, you know, built up to be your number one selling dish. Maybe you're gonna offer ten portions, maybe yeah. twenty. Yeah. On a on a night to see what happens, or mm-hmm. on a busy night to see what happens. And then either it moves or it doesn't move. And if it moves, maybe you do it again. Yeah, totally <laughs> and right. if, it doesn't, if it doesn't move, then you have some extra for staff meal the next day.
2: <laughs> yes, totally. Um, anyway, Jen, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation.
1: I'm happy to have you call in. Again, this is um, Vaughn Tan. If you want to find him, go to vontan.org or go to the site for his book, UncertaintyMindset.org. He's going to have events coming up in 2021. He has a a great newsletter. We didn't get a chance to talk about this, but there's some pizza recipes out there if you want them and you're baking at home and, and winter's a good time to talk about that. We have been recording Tech Bytes on Zencaster since March, and we are closing out our last episode of the year, number 223. I want to thank Von Tan for coming on. I want to thank Matt Patterson, who is our engineer and the head of studio in virtual studio for Heritage Radio Network. He has been a superstar in terms of keeping everything running and keeping it going. I also want to thank all of the staff at the Virtual Heritage Radio Network office, all the men and women who even managed to bring on new shows this fall, who put together an amazing holiday auction, who continue to run the membership drives and bring on new sponsors and keep everything running when we're scattered across the country. I want to thank our listeners who stayed with us. I want to thank our sponsors who made it all possible and really also thank everyone who's in the restaurant and the food industry. Um, We talk a lot about how they are our heroes, but they're not just our heroes. They're our friends, family, husbands, sisters, wives, brothers, kids, and it's a huge part of our community, and we're in dire times right now, and... It really is the time to throw your arms around the things that you love most so that they will be here in 2021 and perhaps like that mochi stand for another thousand years. I'm Jennifer Leuzzi and this is Tech Bytes. Tech Bytes. is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.